What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of those of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, other half of the podcast. Kyle, it seems the allergy bug has uh, struck me again this weekend. That sucks, bro. I know it's that time of the year, but for me, fortunately, I actually made up pretty good this past weekend. I thought it was going to be a touch-and-go thing like it's been the last two weeks, but I feel good for right now. Now, who's to say... An hour from now, things might go downhill real quick. But as of right now, I'm actually pretty good right now. So I'm keeping my fingers crossed, you know. We'll make it work. We'll figure it out like we always do. But I know we have a whole lot to talk about. But how was your weekend, though? It was good. Uh, it was busy. I was working all weekend. So just grind time. And uh, I feel that. I, I mean, outside of that, it was a beautiful weekend. So it was just nice to be outside, do my thing. And... Go back to work on Monday, and then uh, I get a day off on Tuesday. But what about you? What did you do this weekend? Uh, I mean, yesterday went to uh, went to my girl's house, kind of chill with some friends, played some board games, got in the hot tub, just got to relax, like let the body rest. And then uh, today, I actually got to see my Yankees in spring training against the Red Sox. So uh, that was nice to be able to go to a baseball game, not only with you know my dad, but my little brother and my mom. We have we've never done that before. My mom never got to come to the Yankee games, so. It was pretty cool. Spring training, there's no uh, extra innings, so it ended in a tie. But it was pretty cool to see some of our prospects and how they did. So just excited to uh, have Yankees baseball back, even though I know they're going to break my heart. So, Well, to be fair, Kev, we got to let them know about something that you sent me in that game. So just to kind of set the scene, so Kev sent me something on Snapchat when he was at the game. And there's a tradition that goes on at Red Sox games, and really just Red Sox games. Kev, what's the uh, what's your tweet? The, the traditional Caroline. song, yeah, yeah, yeah. What what inning did they play it in? Because I know they typically play it in like the bottom of the eighth inning. It, yeah, it, it was the eighth. Yeah, it was after the seventh inning stretch. And uh, <laughs> what did you say? Uh, so I basically like disowned my dad because he was singing with people next to us that were Red Sox fans. Granted, I mean, he was, you know, being social and making friends, but once I saw him singing the words, I looked over and I was like, what the, what are you doing? Like, I saw saw Mac the shit out of him and I was like, are you out of your mind? And yeah, like, yeah, I was like, I basically disowned my father this weekend and he was like, it's not that serious. It's spring training. I was like, I don't care. It's the principle that matters though. You don't do that shit. Spring training or not, that, there's a principle to abide by. You just don't do That's, that. There's a standard being a Yankee fan, and you just don't start swinging sweet, Car- singing sweet Caroline. That'd be like, imagine them playing uh, New York in Fenway Park. Like, imagine Red Sox fans trying to sing that. Like it, it wouldn't happen. No, not at all. But. No, I, oh, I, I don't know. I was mad at my dad in that split second, but it it was fun. Uh, we had really good seats, like first baseline, um, plenty in the shade. So we actually got to watch the whole game without dying like we did a couple of weeks ago in the Twins game. Um, but no, I, I had I had a whole lot of fun. My brother had a good time. My dad had a good time. So, yeah, no, it was, it was just good to relax with my mm-hmm. folks, came back home and just chilled. You weren't dying from the allergies, too, right? Uh, I was dying prior, but I popped a Zyrtec right before, and I was, like, decent enough to where, like, I had a flare-up-ish. 
I had a napkin in my pocket and just wiped my nose or whatever was there. So, but thankfully I was okay. It was when I got home that I started to die. Well, I mean, sometimes what I do, Kev, remember these bad boys? Were these bad boys back in the day? Yeah, man. Sometimes the mask is necessary at this point, especially with how our allergies act. Listen, for me, when I was at work, bro, as soon as we were leaving the station at Amazon, I I would want to chuck this thing out the window because I'm like, I'm not wearing that thing when I'm outside. But when allergy season hits and the pollen starts flying and the dust starts flying, bro, I, I had to put this on. It's the only thing that could kind of help me from suffering. When I when I was out there, so it's almost this, mandatory the, at this, this point. This does ser- it does serve a purpose, but only for allergies. Outside of that, I would literally like just get rid of it. Like I'm not keeping it. But yeah, I, I saw enough masks for my lifetime. Yeah, it's literally like seared in my brain that that gap of time for the last couple of years when everybody was wearing a mask and freaking out, freaking out about COVID. But we have moved past that. We have moved on to bigger and better things. Speaking of bigger and better things, uh, we got some topics to get to. Uh, what we'll do is we'll kind of break these off into individual segments. So when you guys hear the full thing, it will sound stitched together. But Kevin and I are just going to break these off individually uh, in separate segments simply just because we don't know about the possibility of one of us getting an allergy flare up and you know we don't want to take 30 seconds to a, a minute long to like recover in real time. So more than likely we'll just, we'll break off each segment and then we'll just stitch it all together uh, when we finish all these segments. But speaking of the segments, uh, we'll talk a little bit about the NBA first and then we'll kick it over to the NFL. Uh, we'll talk about Steph, in, Steph's incredible performance this past weekend against the Milwaukee Bucks. Had a 36-point performance, had 22 points in the fourth quarter and overtime. Put out what most would consider a vintage performance from Steph. We'll talk about the impact that he brought in that game and where the Warriors can go from here now that Steph is back in the fold. After that, we'll kind of kick it on, not a somber note, but this is something that's just been a very saddening storyline in the NBA over the last couple of years, and that's Zion Williamson. Zion Williamson's going to be out for the foreseeable future. See, what the hamstring injury at this current moment in time. And I remember Adrian Wojnarowski, Woj was talking about this a couple days ago, put out a tweet basically saying that he that Zion's going to be out for a minimum of two weeks, and there's a real possibility that he could be shut down for the season if these nagging injuries that he sustained continue. So we'll talk about Zion's status, not just for the rest of this year, but honestly his career at this point because I think that there's some rumblings potentially about him being a bust despite being great on the court when he's available it's just the the fact that he's not available on the court is unfortunate in his case after that we'll kick it to the NFL the Panthers they make a trade with the Chicago Bears to get the number one pick Uh, there's a possibility that the Panthers may move down from that number one spot in the draft, and they may try to acquire more draft picks if they're able to find a suitor. But when it comes to the Bears, the Bears got a huge haul in return. Uh, We'll go over that in a little bit once we get to that point, but the Bears picked up quite a nice, uh, I would say a pretty nice bag of draft capital. I would say so myself, yeah. 
in that trade. So we'll talk about that a little bit. We'll talk about Jalen Ramsey getting traded to the Miami Dolphins. And then after that, we'll round it to our two teams that we'll focus on for our off-season fixes. The first one will be the team that we just talked about, the Carolina Panthers. And then the last team we'll talk about is the Detroit Lions. So that'll round out the episode. So let's dive into this first topic at hand, and that is Steph just going nuts against the Bucks this past weekend. Um, just to kind of give you guys a rundown of the game. So the Golden State Warriors defeated the Milwaukee Bucks by the score of 125 to 116. This game did go into overtime, and Steph, kind of similar to what he did in the fourth quarter, just took over in overtime and was one of the focal pieces for the Warriors getting this win over one of the best teams in the NBA in the Milwaukee Bucks. Now, one caveat with this game in particular was Milwaukee did not have Giannis Antetokounmpo in the fold. He is dealing with a wrist injury at this current moment in time. But despite that, the Bucks put a pretty valiant effort against Golden State. But really, the, the focus that we want to pay attention to here is Steph. This was a vintage performance from him. And I think it was noteworthy to talk about. So, Kev, to kick this one to you, what did you make of Steph Curry dropping 36 points against the Milwaukee Bucks this past weekend? Well, with Golden State faltering the last few weeks and you know Steph's been back about a week or so and them winning a game losing two you know it's, it's kind of been up and down for Golden State pretty much the last couple of weeks and I think that a win like this yes uh, Giannis was not available in this game but the fact that the box score shows equal play amongst I want to say seven players were in double figures here if I'm not mistaken so I'm looking at this and I'm saying well you know just because Giannis wasn't there that doesn't mean Milwaukee's incapable of winning you had Bobby Portis with 15. You had Middleton with 19. Brooke Lopez with 19. Drew Holiday with 18. Grayson Allen with 12. Uh, Javon Carter with 13. And then Joe Ingles with 15. Like, there was no weakness in Milwaukee's game. And obviously, you know, this was a very, very close game up until overtime, obviously, because you go and you look at the quarter breakdown, 26-28, 23-22, 28-30, 34 There wasn't a quarter where somebody blew somebody out. There wasn't necessarily an instance where one team pulled away from another until you get to overtime and Steph pops off. Like, like Kyle said, he had 22 in the fourth and overtime combined. So he picked a pretty good time to uh, hit vintage Curry moments. And I mean, the guy was pulling up from all over the place. I mean, you know, bang, bang. Like Mike Breen was just like, he was calling it like crazy. And I mean, it's moments like that where you have to say, Steph, it still has so much left in the tank. The things that he's able to do, what he is able to bring to the table in games like this, it's it's almost unguardable because he truthfully can pull up from half. And I know there's only a few players in the league that have that that weapon or skill set in their bag of tricks. And Steph is is just is just the king of being able to pull from God knows where and blowing the top off of a defense similar to a speedster just running a fly route in football and just blowing past everybody because it's like there's no limit to where he can pull from and it's just really, really scary. And uh Man, this is huge for Steph to gain momentum as Golden State is continuing to try to push in their hunt to uh, you know, have a definitive playoff berth without having to go into the play-in tournament. And as it stands right now, I think that Golden State is either fifth or sixth right now. So if it were to end today, they wouldn't have to be in the play-in. But from what I can see and from games like this, 
Steph Curry's getting in a rhythm. Klay Thompson did tweak an ankle, so it's something to monitor with Golden State. But if, if Steph gets into this mindset, this, this zone that he gets in sometimes towards the end of the seasons, and he just starts making buckets, and he just starts being Steph and Curry, um, Golden State will be okay. Um, and I believe that wholeheartedly they will, I think they'll get a playoff spot, whether that's a play in tournament spot, like seven or eight seed or a definitive, you know, obviously like six or uh, fifth or sixth seed. But if Steph's got to, Steph's got to play like this at, at this level and they're going to need Andrew Wiggins back because he's been gone with dealing with a uh, very personal matter that no one has been able to disclose. No one knows, understand what's going on, but everybody in the Warriors organization has stated it's bigger than basketball. So I'm assuming it's got to be something family related. If they get back together, Steph continues his pace, Golden State will need to be monitored going into the postseason because they will have gotten hot at just the right time. So I'm actually going to look at this from two different perspectives. Uh, just the one perspective with Steph being at the forefront, well, he was sensational. 36 points, 22 points in the fourth and uh, the fourth quarter and overtime combined. Nobody's going to hate on what Steph did in that game. He was phenomenal. And he was one of the biggest reasons why the Warriors won that game against the Bucks. It's just the thing that I look at with this game in particular with Golden State is the fact that they didn't have to worry about Giannis. Giannis is dealing with a wrist injury. And I'm of the mindset, had Giannis been available for this game against Golden State, first of all, just a Giannis versus Curry matchup would have been very entertaining to watch. But honestly, I think the game would have been a runaway. I think the Bucks would have handily defeated Golden State in that matchup had they had their full roster ready to go with Giannis leading the way because Giannis is just a freak of nature. And when he gets literally running downhill when he's dribbling the basketball, there's not many people that can stop him. And even though that Steph did his thing, scored damn near 40 points in the process, it just seems to me that Giannis's effectiveness would have been I think more potent in this game had he been available than what we actually saw take place on the court. But I will say the Bucks had a valiant effort despite not having Giannis in the fold. It was like what Kevin had just said. They had six, seven players in double figures in that game and made it a very competitive game against Golden State. To me, when you look at this from a Warriors perspective, you're going up against a team, granted the Milwaukee Bucks are one of the best teams in the NBA, but not having Giannis is a, big detriment when it comes to the Bucks going up against Golden State. The fact that Golden State couldn't extend the lead a little bit better than what they did, the fact that it was really a back-and-forth affair the entire game, I would be a little bit concerned about that if I was Golden State. And look, Golden State, they're the defending NBA champions from this past season. And they they've kind of had moments where they've looked good. And then there've been times where they've been very up and down, very inconsistent. And there've been times they've just been flat out blown out. Granted, there have been injuries this year across the board. And, you know, I don't want to miss that point, but this was a game more than likely golden state should have won by 10, 15 plus. And the fact that this game had to go into overtime and it took some late game heroics from Stephen Curry to win this game. It really indicates that golden state has taken a drop off from last year. They're still a decent team, and I still think that they will make the playoffs in this upcoming postseason run. But this was a game that they probably should have won a little bit more comfortably. And, you know, Steph did what he did. I, I'm not going to discourage that point. But overall, 
I think the team could probably play up to a better standard. I think, like you said, Kev, getting Andrew Wiggins back into the fold sooner rather than later will definitely help out this team. But I am a little bit worried about the Warriors. I think that they can still make the playoffs, but it, if I'm thinking that the Warriors are making some sort of deep playoff run with the way that the Western Conference is set up this year, I'm not betting on that. I think more than likely it's going to be shaky for them for the for the rest of the way out. But hopefully they can find a way to string along some wins, maybe get on a little bit of a momentum kick and hope for the best. It's just they haven't really been able to do that consistently this year. So overall, it was a gr- good win for the Warriors, the fact that they were able to still get the W because the way that that Western Conference is set up is it's so log-jammed from the 5th seed to the 12th seed. Every win matters for Golden State. So this was at least something of a positive result because they got the win. I think in the manner that they did it, they could probably look back at this game and think this is a game that we probably should have won more convincingly. But overall, Steph is just that dude. And hopefully they can string some wins along to get a better seed in the Western Conference with how it's set up right now. And obviously, like I said, final point with Golden State being in the position that they're in, needing Steph Curry to you know play at this level consistently. They are definitely going to need to keep Klay Thompson healthy. An ankle tweak, which is going around the NBA right now, is nothing to be, uh, nothing to be, what am I thinking of right now? Nothing to be, to be, to not to be, I guess not to be taken lightly, because honestly, when we talk about a shooter who's constantly running through screens and pulling up from all over the court himself, you need somebody to be able to be available. So I'm just going to, you know, leave it at that. It's just, again, something that we need to pay attention to. The Splash Brothers do well when they're both on the floor. It, they just space it tremendously. So let's just monitor Clay Thompson. 100%. And I, it's like I said, every win matters from here on out simply just because with that Western Conference being as log jam as it is, can't afford to get on a two, three, a two to three game skid. And then you could potentially be as low as the 10th or 11th seed. So Golden State can't afford that from here on out. But with that said, we are going to transition to another team that is currently trying to make moves to try to get into the playoffs as well. And that is the New Orleans Pelicans. Unfortunately for them, Zion is not going to be in the fold for the foreseeable future. Uh, Woj tweeted this a couple days ago. So you guys see this. This will be March 13th. But he tweeted out on March 8th that Zion Williamson uh, will miss the next two weeks. Actually, more than that, a minimum of the next two weeks. Uh, he's dealing with a hamstring issue. And it, when it comes to Zion, Zion's been unfortunately riddled with injuries in his early NBA career. And Kevin and I were talking about this before we even started recording. It's just he's never available for New Orleans. But when he's on, he provides an instant spark for the team. The guy could go out and get you 25 and 30 points, get 10, 15 rebounds like it's nothing. But the guy is just never available. Kev, you were saying Brandon Ingram and Zion Williamson have only played a combined amount of 12 games this season. That just kind of goes to show. Together, like on the floor together. That's crazy. And I I mean, when it comes to Zion and Brandon Ingram, that's a good dynamic duo to have between the two of them. But Zion's availability has been a question mark in his early career. And Kev, that's where I'm going to kick this question to you. So with Zion potentially missing the next couple of weeks with a hamstring issue, are you worried about the idea 
that Zion Williamson could potentially be a bust based on the amount of injuries that he sustained early on in his career. I think that that conversation definitely needs to be had. I mean, we're talking about somebody when on the floor for his career is averaging upwards of 26 points per game, shooting 60% from the field, 34% from the three-point line, having seven rebounds a game and three and a half assists. That is his career average. This year, I mean, he's only played 29 games. Didn't play all of last year. In 2020, played 61 games, which is obviously a career high. Then you go to 2019, his rookie season. He only played 24 year, 24 games. It's this situation, it's this conversation that people don't want to have because when he's on and he's available, he's unstoppable. I mean, we're talking about a guy that's what six foot six, 284, 85 pounds, whatever it is, and he's a freight train. Jumps out the gym, he runs down the floor, he hustles. He's athletic, he can rebound, he can defend, and then obviously he's developing his jump shot the further his career progresses. But it's not what you can do for me now. It's what you need to be able to do for me later. He just signed a Supermax extension with the Pelicans this past offseason for over $190 million. And this man, he doesn't play. I don't know how he got an extension last offseason when he didn't play a single game last year. I don't know how his agent bamboozled the Pelicans out of that. Like, obviously you need to give him something because you can't let the potential walk away. Don't give him a supermax. This guy's making hundreds of millions of dollars and he's never ever on the court. I'm not taking away from like I said and I need to remind people when he plays he is just an immovable object, an unstoppable force and it's just an athletic freak of nature and he's so much fun to watch. And with this Pelican squad, with Ingram, with McCollum, with Troy Murphy, or Trent Murphy, whichever one it is, dude, this is a very, very young and entertaining team. And he takes them over the hill, or hump. He's just not here. And it's injury after injury after injury. I'm not going to make the comparison to Greg Oden because Greg Oden had so many different procedures. He wasn't as dominant as a Zion Williamson. But we're talking about a number one overall pick, a big with a multitude of injured uh injuries in his already early career and he's just it's unfortunate man it's it's situations like this where you have to have conversations like is he technically a bust he's averaging like i think 28 and a half games a season in four years in the nba his career total games played is 114 there are 82 games in one season ladies and gentlemen that is unheard of for someone to get an extension with that small of a sample size. So I hate to say it because I don't want to because I like Zion Williamson, despite him coming from Duke. And when he's on the floor, I, just, I can't get enough of him. I, I have to watch. But with him not being available and his team consistently struggling without him, granted, they took Phoenix to six games, I think, two years ago or last year. But... um I think if Zion's on the floor, man, he's just such a game changer. And the fact that he's never available just goes to show he's transitioning quickly into that bust category because he just can't stay healthy. With Zion, it's tricky because we both agree that when he's on the court, he's a difference maker and it's not even close. It's just the availability factor is a major component to this issue. And, you know, if it was a scenario where he's only missing, let's say, 
20 to 25 games per year, that would be different. That we wouldn't even be entertaining this conversation because honestly, that would be disrespectful to him. But the fact of the matter is, is that he's missing in some instances, two thirds of the season. That's why this conversation is being had. And I think that it's actually deserved because when it comes to somebody like Zion, just the idea of potentially putting him in this bus category, there'd be this reflexive idea from NBA fans across the spectrum. Like, how could you say that? Knowing what Zion's capable of, that you can't say that about him just because the potential is still there. I mean, I remember early in Joel Embiid's career, he was dealing with some injury issues. And then slowly but surely, as he stayed with Philly, he was able to play more games. I think in his first season, he only played about 30, 35 games, if I remember correctly. But then in the years after, he was consistently putting up 50, 55 games. And now I think with him being essentially the focal piece for the Sixers, he's going to play 60 to 70 plus games every year. And injuries are just not as prevalent with Joel right now compared to the early part of his career. With Zion, he just can't shake it. I mean, it's to the point where, like you said, Kev, he's missing at least two-thirds of the year. And, I mean, AD gets joked about all the time for wearing street clothes because if somebody breathes on him wrong or somebody sneezes on him, then he's missing at least a minimum of two weeks. But with Zion, it seems as if Zion has missed that narrative completely. And I think it's because people still see the potential. And trust me, I still see the potential. I know what he's capable of. That guy could go out there and drop 25, 30 points easy, get 10 to 15 rebounds, and probably get two to three blocks. But the biggest thing with him is that he's just not available. Because if he were playing, let's say, three quarters of the game, if he was playing about 60 games per year, the Pelicans might be in a situation where they would miss the play-in tournament entirely and just hop straight into the playoffs. They wouldn't have to worry about this whole play-in tournament situation because Zion would be that big of a difference maker. It's just right now, with him not being in the fold consistently, that's why the Pelicans have not been able to advance. And the Pelicans have some good players. They have good depth, but they need their star to be out there on the court more often. And unfortunately for him, he just can't stay healthy. So it's unfortunate that Kevin and I are having this conversation because we get no satisfaction in bringing this up. I'm not going to say that he's a well-defined bust like Greg Oden, but if he consistently misses more time in his NBA career, probably for the next year or two, then I think it's more likely than not that he's going to be trending towards that bust category. And it's not because of his skill set. It's just injuries. And that's a bad way... to look at somebody's career, I fully understand that, but it's the truth. Availability is the best avail- is the best ability. And unfortunately for Zion, he hasn't been able to do that because I would love to see him out there on the court more often than not, but unfortunately, that's just not the case. So I would say he's not a bust yet, but he's definitely on the pathway to being one. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Tulusma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Tulusma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. 
Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. So moving on into the NFL, there, uh, there's some news finally in the NFL draft order. The Chicago Bears did, in fact, trade back. And the, um, I guess the, the victor in this would be the Carolina Panthers obtaining the number one overall pick. However, they did give quite a haul to the Bears in return. So Kyle, to kick this one your way, what are your thoughts on what Carolina had to give up to get the number one overall pick and who you believe won this trade realistically? For me, I, I think the Bears are the clear-cut, concise winner from this trade. Now, granted, you know, the Panthers get the number one pick, but let's look at the trade details here. So the Bears, they get the number nine pick in this year's draft. They also get the number 61 pick in this year's draft. So that would be late second round. Then they also get a first round pick for 2024, a second round pick in 2025. And then you get DJ Moore on top of it. I mean, to me, the number one pick is the number one pick, but with what the Bears got in return from this trade, they're, they're the winners to me. Because when you look at DJ Moore and how he brings another layer to that wide receiving core, I think that's going to serve Justin Fields very well going into next year. Because when you look at their wide receiving core for next year, just on paper, you're looking at DJ Moore, Chase Claypool, and Darnell Mooney. That's a pretty good trio of receivers to work with. Because let's face it, when it comes to Chicago's wideouts for the last couple of years. It's been abysmal, but this seems like a pretty solid wide receiving core that Justin's going to be able to throw to. The only thing for Chicago is, is can they bolster their offensive line to protect Justin better? And I will say, you know, the fact that they still have the number nine pick in this year's draft, maybe they try to address that. Maybe they try to address their pass rush because when it comes to the Bears, the Bears had one of the worst pass rushes in the NFL this past season. I believe they actually had the worst one. They only had 20 sacks as a unit this entire year, which is just, that is not a pretty sight. So, you know, when it comes to Carolina picking up the number one pick to flip it to them, there's no guarantee that they're going to use this number one pick for something that they're going to use with the team. There are reports circulating that they're more than likely going to trade down with this pick to try to acquire what I would assume is more draft capital, kind of similar to what the Bears did. But I don't know if they're going to get as big as a haul that Chicago just got in this trade. Maybe a team would be suckers enough to trade up some picks to go to Carolina if some team were to agree to a trade here. But just based on this trade alone with the Bears and the Panthers, I think the Bears got this one in a runaway. It's not even close. But when it comes to the Panthers, I think the Panthers have some moves that more than likely that they're focusing on right now. They're not finalized yet. They're in motion still probably. They're probably working with some front offices to try to make some sort of trade happen with this number one pick that they now have in the foreseeable future. But with this trade between the Bears and the Panthers, the Bears got this one all day. So Kev, I'll get this one to you from here. I agree. The Bears definitely won this trade. I mean, just straight up off of getting DJ Moore. I mean, we've talked about what Justin Fields needs in this league 
for the last couple of weeks. And obviously receiver depth playmakers were one of the biggest focal points outside of the offensive line and some other pieces. So just in acquiring DJ, you immediately upgrade your roster and you're still within the top 10 because again, you're, you're, you're number nine. If I'm Chicago, I trade back again. I got a big piece. Now I have a playmaker who's under contract. I have somebody that's going to make an immediate impact on this team and I'm going to continue to build for the future. Again, you got that uh, second round 2025. You got next year's first round pick. I mean, you got a second round pick this year, a first round pick this year. Like you were going to be able to build so much with the amount of cap space Chicago has. Again, I'm not saying I would trade out of the first round, depending on what that haul in return would be again. But clearly the Bears have an idea as to how they want to go about this draft. I, again, personally, I would I would go back one more time, go back into the late teens, early 20s, get some real good draft capital because people need a top 10 pick. There are a lot of teams that are desperate to go out there and get some playmakers. Um, and I think that there are quite a bit in this draft, both on the defensive side as well as on the offensive line. There's some good prospects. And Chicago has handedly put their stamp on this draft without it even starting yet. And I think that what Carolina gave was a little bit too much. Uh, I'm not saying that a first round pick obviously isn't important, but for you to go give for, uh, four first round, four draft picks and a star player, if not your best offensive player, is just a. Uh, it's a little weird for me. And for Carolina to end up wanting to trade back again, like just what was the purpose of giving up everything to trade back and reacquire it all? Unless you were trying to dump DJ's contract, which at this point, if you're in a rebuild, I don't understand what the point of that is because you're going to need somebody for your rookie quarterback who I would assume you're drafting since all you have is Sam Darnold on that roster, uh, you know, is, is, is what you're going to need. So I don't know what Carolina's thinking. Uh, all I know is right now, they're getting a lot of slander on Colts Twitter because, well, not me, but Colts Colts fans are getting slander because Frank Reich obviously knows Carolina needs a quarterback. Um, and them trading up into the first round makes me laugh because obviously that takes another quarterback off the board unless Indy were to trade up, in which I'm praying to God in this hypothetical that's in my head that we do not trade with Carolina to go to the number one overall pick because then Frank's going to laugh and he's going to be like, I made you have to trade up. And you know what I mean? Just that I'm weird. That's how I think about things. It's, it's probably not at all what, what Carolina is doing, but that's where my mind went automatically when I saw that they traded for him, uh, traded up for that pick. So in terms of what Carolina did, I understand that they, if they do keep this pick, they need a quarterback of the future. We know that this is not a quarterback heavy draft, but the first four quarterbacks off the board will more than likely be within the first 10 picks, in my opinion. So um, there are also rumors, which are hilarious, that people in the Panthers organization are intrigued with Anthony Richardson and the potential of him being the first overall pick, which again, that makes me laugh 10 times harder because I feel like that would be uh, very much like Frank Reich to make a stupid decision, but that would also benefit Indy. So we're never going to get that lucky. Um, so we'll see what happens. Again, the NFL draft is going to have a lot of narratives like this that are continuously circulating. The closer we get to the draft, and of course, even on draft night, there's going to be a lot of Pick swaps is going to be a lot of personnel trades. I mean, we saw AJ Brown get moved at the, on the draft on draft night, and we've definitely seen some tra some teams make some crazy decisions on draft night to go out there and, and acquire some better pieces for their team to bolster it. But overall, I would definitely say that Chicago wins this trade, and based upon what they end up doing with the number nine overall pick, I say this can even get that much better for them. All right, so up next, we are going to move on to the Jalen Ramsey trade that took place this past weekend. The details are pretty simple, you guys. The Dolphins get Jalen Ramsey, and the Rams get 2023 third-round pick, and they also get a backup tight end in this trade. 
So, Kev, I'm going to get this one to you straight up. What do you think about the Dolphins training for Jalen Ramsey and the impact that he could bring to that Dolphins defense next season? Dude, we're talking about one of the best corners in football. Obviously, we know him for being the best corner over the last couple of seasons, but he did have a down year. I will give him somewhat of a pass because L.A. completely fell apart in multiple facets. The defense couldn't stop anybody. Then you got to talk about the offense being inconsistent, rolling through three, four quarterbacks to where you had to sign Baker Mayfield off of the waiver wire, which is just unheard of at this point in the season, especially with, with his career and his resume. And um, the Rams weren't really able to do much, if anything at all. So um, again, I will chalk up his last season to, to, to the ineptitude of the team as a whole. And then, of course, when the offense can't score and the offense can't stay on the field, I say this pretty much what it feels like every week. Your defense gets tired. Your defense gets winded. They get burnt out. And obviously, that means bigger plays happen, miscues, mistakes, etc. We talk about the Dolphins. They made a move for Bradley Chubb. They cut Byron Jones. They extended Xavier Howard a few years ago, if not last year. They are making moves and strides to go about making a winning culture. They traded for Tyreek Hill last year. They picked up Tua's fifth-year option. Mike McDaniels and what he was able to display when the team was at full strength showed that this Dolphins offense could compete with the best of them, but had some weaknesses in the defensive side. They weren't the greatest pass rushing team. They weren't the greatest cover team. But again, what they've acquired with the two pieces in terms of Bradley Chubb and now Jalen Ramsey, you pair two all-pro corners on the outside. You have an elite pass rusher. Chris Wilkins had a... a uh, a breakout season last year at the defensive tackle position. I believe that this catapults Miami extensively because, again, the offense takes care of itself. You add an all-pro corner that doesn't have to be the everything of a defense in the secondary. You have a complimentary quarterback cornerback on the other side. We saw what this did for Darius Slay when they got Bradbury in Philadelphia and how they were able to lock it down. Now you have some assistance with Xavier. Jalen Ramsey can play a little bit more freely. And I think that this Dolphins defense will take that next step into ascending into an upper, if not above average defense, which is going to help create turnovers. And again, when you have Jalen Ramsey on one side and Xavier Howard on the other, you have to make judgment calls on what side you want to gamble with. I would probably lean a little bit more with the Xavier side, not to disrespect him, but he has fallen off a little bit in recent memory. But I think the two of them combined easily can remedy, uh, remedy uh, a combination for arguably one of the better cornerback duos in the NFL. And I think if Miami plays their cards right and Tua can stay healthy, Miami will be right back in the playoffs and probably get a win or two. I think for me, I think the Dolphins definitely are getting a great piece in Jalen Ramsey. The only thing that we have to keep in mind with Jalen is what sort of Jalen are we going to get? Are we going to get that? breakout Jalen Ramsey that was essentially hot off the presses in Jacksonville. But Kev, we were looking at his stats before we started recording. And last year, granted, I know that that defense was subpar to say the least. But statistically speaking, Jalen did not have his best year in defensive coverage. And there have been times where Jalen has been burnt. Jalen has been beat one-on-one and not just for a short little plays. Something's Sometimes these are some pretty big plays that he's giving up in the process. And that's going to be something that we're going to have to monitor when Jalen hits the field as a member of the Dolphins going into next year. But when it comes to what the Dolphins have on paper, like Kev said, when you have Xavier Howard and Jalen Ramsey as your two-star corners, 
that's going to be a nightmare scenario for opposing quarterbacks. So I guess if you're looking at it from, I guess, a depth perspective when it comes to the Dolphins, you'd have to focus on maybe trying to round out your third and fourth corners because more than likely what offenses are going to do is they're going to look at the field. They're going to scan what they have in front of them. Okay, you got Jalen on the left or the right side. You got Xavier on the left or right side of the defense. More than likely, they're going to have to focus on trying to beat their third or fourth corner on the roster. And maybe that's the one way they, they could get, potentially get past this Dolphins defense in the secondary. But with Jalen in the fold in Miami, I think it immediately bolsters this defense. And now it's just whether or not that he's going to be able to play up to the standard that we saw more in Jacksonville than we did with the Rams. Now, granted, last year, statistically, he tied his career high in interceptions. But when it came to the passing coverage that he had, he was allowing about 62% of the passes thrown his way to be completed to the receivers he was going up against. It wasn't his career worst. I believe when he was traded to the Rams in that initial year, he was giving up around 65 to 67% of the passes that were coming his way. But we have to see something very similar to that type of style that was so prevalent early on in his career in Jacksonville. Could he be able to attain similar numbers? I believe so. I think with the way that the Dolphins have been playing the last couple of years, they are a trending team as far as trending in the right direction. And I think their defensive system is going to be pretty solid. They have Vic Fangio coming into the fold as their DC this upcoming year. So there are some changes on this defense that have already taken place. And as far as I see it, you know, this move definitely bolsters their defense. I think it strengthens the team as a whole. And I think, like Kev said, I think if they play their cards right, their destiny is kind of in their own hands. And they can definitely not only make a decent playoff berth, as far as the seed is concerned, but they could potentially win, you know, past the wild card round and get into the divisional round. It just kind of depends on if this defense can play up to snuff. If Mike McDaniel improves uh, from his first year as a head coach and Tua hopefully stays healthy. But overall, I like where the Dolphins are going. I think this is a good move to pick up Jalen and we'll see if these guys uh, can bring it all together going into next year. Now, moving into our next segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the next two teams on our three needs for each NFL team going into 2023. And the two teams we've selected are the Carolina Panthers and the Detroit Lions. So first, we're going to get into Carolina a little bit. So Carolina last year was just a smidge under subpar, and they had a pretty much a fire sale to start the year, and now they have the number one overall pick. So Kyle... What are some things that you believe Carolina needs to do in order to improve for next season? There's a few areas that I can look at with Carolina because Carolina, even though that they weren't that good when it came to their record overall, with how bad the NFC South was this past year, they actually had a potential to, to make the playoffs. They just fell a little bit short compared to the Bucks. So, you know, with them being at a seven and ten record this past season, the NFC South is still kind of up in flux. So, if they make some small adjustments. Uh, it could actually have a positive outcome for the Panthers going into next year. So one of the areas that I've looked at just initially is their wide receiving court. Their wide receiving court took a massive hit when DJ Moore was traded to the Bears. And when you look at DJ Moore this past season, he had around 65 catches, almost had 900 yards receiving, and he was by far and away their lead receiver. 
this past season. But with him no longer in the fold for Carolina, when you look at their wide receiver core on paper right now, from first string down to third string for their starters, you have Terrace Marshall Jr., Shee Smith, and Chanel. So those three guys combined had a very similar output for production compared to DJ Moore. Because when you look at Chanel, She Smith, and Terrace Marshall Jr., they pretty much had somewhere in between about 20 to 35 catches, respectively, between each guy. So if they're going to run with those young guys at their wide receiving court and build them up to try to progress them to be better overall receivers, that is one avenue that, that they could take. But I also think that there's a possibility with them now holding that number one pick in the NFL draft, maybe they can trade down and get some more picks in return to where maybe they can look towards the draft to bring in another wide receiving core, maybe a higher end prospect in the wide receiver realm, this draft to try to round out a better wide receiving core going into next year, because that is going to be something that we're going to focus on with Carolina. Just when you look at it on paper right now, it seems like their wide receiving core is a little bit thin, especially after DJ Moore just went to Chicago. And then the biggest one, if I had to say, is the quarterback. Because when you look at their starting quarterbacks right now, it's either a toss-up between Sam Darnold or P.J. Walker. And with the way that this draft is set up, if they were able to keep the number one pick, let's say they keep that number one pick hypothetically and they, they draft the quarterback, they could go after Stroud, they could go after Richardson. Is that going to be the guy that's going to potentially lead this franchise to future success? It's all really depending on whether or not that they trade down with that pick. Hypothetically, they could use that number one pick to secure their quarterback of the future in this draft, potentially. But with the reports circulating right now, it seems like it's more likely than not that they're going to trade out of that pick to acquire more picks. And maybe they could look towards drafting a quarterback in the second or third round, potentially. It kind of depends on how they want to look at it. But as far as I see it, the quarterback position is a key area of need simply just because it's really been a hit or miss spot with the personnel that they've had in that quarterback room since Cam Newton. So overall, for what I see it as, just two issues that the Carolina Panthers need to address this offseason, it's definitely the quarterback spot because if you don't have a quarterback, the offense isn't going anywhere. And then number two would probably be their wide receiving core. So I know Kev probably has some other things that the Panthers could focus on this offseason. So I will kick this one to him from here on out. So obviously that leaves me with one addition that they're going to need to make, and that is going to be specifically a defensive playmaker, whether that's a corner, a safety, a linebacker. Someone's going to go have to be put out there in order to make some defensive stops, or at least, like I said, a, a specific playmaker to go out there and make big plays on that side. If I'm not mistaken, if I'm reading this correctly, Statistically, the Panthers were 26th in the NFL in the turnover margin. They averaged one inter or one turnover per game. They were negative four overall in the margin. They gave the ball away 21 times, and they only had 17 total takeaways. So when you talk about defense and obviously drafting a young quarterback for the offense, you're going to need someone to go out there and get stops, whether that's, again, that's a, a big pass rusher, a linebacker, somebody to go out there, a shutdown corner. 
the Panthers are in desperation mode. They weren't the worst defense overall statistically, but when you talk about not being able to create and force turnovers as a team, that's not something that you are going to be able to live and die with moving forward in the NFL. So uh, to kind of just, like I said, to smallly add to Kyle, uh, that's definitely going to be a defensive playmaker, someone that's going to go out there and get you some stops. All right, and for the last segment that we have for you guys, uh, we're going to go over the Detroit Lions and the offseason issues that they need to address. So when it comes to the Lions, the Lions were actually a pretty decent team, all things considered, this past season. They finished with an above 500 record at a 9-8 and finish. Unfortunately for them, they fell a little bit short in getting to the playoffs, but it seems as if Dan Campbell, as their head coach, is leading the way for the Lions to be a resurgent team this upcoming year. Offensively, they're one of the top uh, they're one of the top offenses in the NFL. And just a few little tweaks here and there, and they could potentially be a playoff team this upcoming year. So, Kev, to get this one to you, what are some things that you think the Lions need to address this offseason to improve their overall chances going into next year? I would say, I mean, really, they, they got to revamp this defense almost at every single capacity. Uh, we, first of all, let's start with the, the, the corners and the secondary. I mean, they were one of the worst pass defenses in the NFL, despite having Jeff Okuda and a couple of maybe bright, young, talented corners and safeties. But in, in terms of what they put onto the field, it was just absolutely atrocious. They weren't really able to stop a cold and... If you don't build that up, whether in the draft or in free agency, it's it's going to continue to be the issue of having to outscore everyone because they have the ineptitude of getting stops. Although they were plus seven in the turnover margin this year, I believe firmly that if you go out there and you get a, a shutdown corner, a big play-making safety, a hard-hitting safety even, somebody that's going to make an impact, that is going to make a very significant difference in giving your offense the opportunity to get the ball back and score. And keeping it on the defensive side, you're going to need some linebackers. Currently, as it stands right now, there are only two linebackers on contract for the Lions, and that is going to be Malcolm Rodriguez and Derek Barnes. I don't know too much about them, but I'm pretty sure having two linebackers on your roster is not going to get it done. And when you talk about what the, the Lions were able to do, or should I say not able to do, They weren't able to really stop the run. They weren't able to make big plays on defense. They weren't really a a team that's known for that that tough grittiness on the defensive side. Offensively, we all know what Dan Campbell was able to get out of his team and his offense. But when you talk about the linebacker position, being the captain of a defense, having that leader, Alex Anzalone Anzalone. uh, was a big anchor for that defense, but he is a free agent as well. And... We don't know if he's going to come back or not. So for the sake of the segment, obviously you need to build that linebacker room. But if you can bring Alex back, that is absolutely massive because we all know what he was able to do and what he was able to bring to the table. So for me, it's got to be cornerback depth, got to be safety depth somewhere in the secondary. And then, of course, you're going to have to bolster up that linebacking core. And Kev, if I were to look at one more piece of this defense that probably needs to be tweaked, it's going to be the interior defensive line because... When you look back at this past year, when it came to the Lions' rush defense, it was atrocious. The Lions had one of the worst rushing defenses in the NFL, and it was like what Kevin said. It's just, for their front four, especially in their run game defensively, they just don't have gritty personnel to be able to win those one-on-one battles consistently. And listen, when you're in essentially 
that top five category of being one of the worst uh, defenses in specific categories, especially with their rush defense. It's going to put the entire team on their heels to a certain extent. And there were games outright where just opposing offenses ran roughshod over that defensive line because they knew what to attack. So when it comes to their defensive line, obviously a lot of people will focus on Aiden Hutchinson, who's off to a pretty good start in his NFL career. But there's going to be some adjustments that are going to need to be made on this defensive line. And it may mean that they bring in some personnel this offseason to potentially bolster that. They could look to the draft. Or they could potentially try to build these guys homegrown. You know, they have Aline McNeil. They have Isaiah Bugs, They have Charles Harris. I mean, if you're looking at this outside of a Lions fan perspective, you probably don't know who any of these guys are. You know, some of these guys are up and coming. They have a little bit of potential. Maybe they could try to build these guys up over the years. But as of right now, what they're getting from just a productivity perspective is not up to snuff just because the stats reflect that. So overall, I think Kevin pretty much hit the head on his points. And really the only final point that I can make, it mostly has to do with their interior defensive line. Outside of that, I think the Lions are a team on the rise. Offensively, like Kevin said, they're trending in the right direction, especially with Jared Goff leading the way at the quarterback position. And I think if they make these little adjustments on their defense, I think there's a very good chance that they can make the playoffs next year. All right, guys, that's going to wrap it up. Kyle and I have been battling demons all evening with these allergies. And, uh, you know, we'll be back again, uh, hopefully, on Thursday, barring if these allergies take us out. Keep my fingers crossed. It's kind of unknown right now. No guarantee. There's just no guarantee. We're, we're really going through it. For those of you that can't see our faces, Kyle and I are really just sitting here struggling, whether it's blowing our noses, sneezing, scratching our eyes, washing our faces. It's honestly insane, and I need March to be over. So uh, like I said, with that being said, we appreciate the support wherever we've gotten it, and we'll see you guys again later this week. Take it easy, you guys. Today is working for me. Do you believe that for yourself? Hey, I'm Pastor Julie, and I want to empower you through encouragement, inviting you to my podcast, Big Truth Encouragement, where I unpack living a faith-filled life. I created my podcast for the ladies, but gentlemen, you'll gain something too. So I invite you to listen to Big Truth Encouragement on Electricast and any platform where you listen to your podcast. Electricast. Hey, what's happening out there, everybody? This is Lawrence Ross, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Lawrence Ross Show. Egomaniac. It's a two-hour weekly exploration into my mind. I also do sketches, celebrity impersonations. You're out of order! And I also do song parodies. Not too shabby for a blind guy. Not only are you visually impaired, but you are geographically impaired. New episodes are released every Friday. Check it out on your favorite podcasting platform or listen to it here on Society 13 on Electrocast.